Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. And every once in a while, we have one of these special episodes. Behind the scenes, we record the interview first and then do the introductory to the episode after that. Well, this interview with Emily Parker, who is a visual information specialist with the National Park Service. Her work focuses on the Timaquan Ecological and Historic Preserve, which is around the Jacksonville area, part of which is Kingsley Plantation. Craig, this went so well and and so long, we're going to hop right to it. It's an astounding story and one that a lot of people in Florida don't know, but they should. Absolutely. To put you in in a geographic place, Kingsley Plantation, it's about midway between downtown Jacksonville and Amelia Island on A1A. It is open to the public, and uh, I made my first visit recently, despite being married uh, almost feet from Kingsley Plantation at another historic site there called the Rebull Club. But whether you're in Amelia or Jacksonville or passing through uh, on on I-95, make time to stop at Kingsley Plantation. And our conversation with Emily Parker from the National Park Service will help explain why. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, uh, first of all, let's just talk about the the place. So talk about Kingsley Plantation, which I think a lot of people don't even know is there. Um, t- tell people what they would find if they if they showed up there. I mean, I understand why people might not know where it is. I think that's part of why it's lasted so long. It's a building from the 1700s in Florida on the waterfront. So, I mean, the chances of it getting torn down and a hotel being built are pretty high. (laughs) Uh, But because it's located on Fort George Island, um, kind of nestled uh, between state parks and and, uh, you have to take the ferry to get there if you're coming from like Jack's Beach, uh, it survived. And so uh, on Fort George Island, when you turn into the park, you have to go down this long kind of windy, sometimes bumpy road um, through a dense maritime forest with hanging Spanish moss before you actually get to Kingsley Plantation. Um, Kingsley Plantation has uh, so much history. I mean, the whole island has a lot of history. It had archaic shell rings and a Spanish mission. And for a long chunk of its history, Fort George Island was a plantation, but it was oriented to the waterway. So when you walk out, um, you you hit every part of the island. And then finally, you get to the Fort George River, which was in the 1700s, the entrance to the plantation, how people got there <laughs> Um, historically. So you have to go through a lot to get to um, what is the site today, which I I think in some ways helps and it gets you into this mindset of like, this place is going to be otherworldly. And And I think a lot of people, when they think of a plantation, they think of Terra from Gone with the Wind, but it's not like that, right? It represents a different era. So like Mm -hmm. I said, it's the oldest standing plantation house in Florida. Florida was very much a frontier at that time. It dates to the 1700s. It's so it's less ostentatious. I mean, it is a big old white building though, and it mm-hmm. is built on the backs of enslaved people. So there are some things that has in common with Terra, uh, but it is a more uniquely Florida site. Um, other than I, this is my weird fun fact. I love to give people. It has a basement. And that's very unusual wow. in Florida. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, again, the fact that it survived is uh, mm. pretty uh, 
crazy sometimes to think of. Craig, to, to your point, and I was just had the opportunity to visit Kingsley Plantation. E- Emily, I live on Amelia Island. Uh, so I am, you know, 10 miles from there. I got married at the Rebo Club, which is uh, the next house over from <laughs> Kingsley Plantation. And with the the, the tree growth around it, it, it doesn't look like it does uh, or it used to when it was a, a plantation. But to your point, Craig, yes, it does not have the huge white columns and the veranda and the lawn and the azaleas blooming out front and the landscaped gardens like you associate with, you know, what you imagine Terra to be or or the plantations around Charleston, South Carolina, for instance. It, it is a very different feel than than that sort of of experience. Yeah, I mean, we leave the the azaleas and the and the beauty over for the Rabot Club, and that represents a whole different period of history on Fort George Island that's really interesting unto itself. Um, but at Kingsley Plantation, the the business wasn't of being beautiful or being a prominent place in society. I mean, the the job of that island was to make wealth for the property's owners. Um, Zephaniah Kingsley himself had. 32,000 acres approximately in the Jacksonville area, multiple plantations, and they're growing different things at each. And at this particular one, it was Sea Island cotton. And so that that dense forest that you come through today to visit was cleared for the most part. Some part was left uh, wooded, but cleared and fields and fields of cash crops. Uh, And the first thing you see when you come into the site today, uh, when you walk through our gates, is the, the slave cabin. So it really... I mean, it really gives you a proper introduction rather than the columns and thinking of plantations as beautiful places. Uh, we have people, I mean, they come in through and see dozens of, of cabins and they see the evidence of slavery right up front. Yeah, that's good. Um, um, tell us a little bit about Zephaniah Kingsley. He, he was a very unusual character for his time, wasn't he? He was pretty unusual in in his era. Um, he was a person who would flex and um, alter his opinions over his lifetime. So it's interesting to have studied him more holistically because he kind of curves back and forth into um, and out of what he believes. I mean, he is a former slave trader who eventually does interviews with um, abolition magazines. And in, in those interviews, he's trying to promote this Spanish system, this three-tiered system of slavery, where there are free white people, free black people, and slaves. And it's more of, some historians call it a society with slaves rather than a slave society. One in which uh, enslaved people can get out of that condition, whether through self-manumission or you know, other routes. He kind of argues that well, slavery without a chance to like legally get out of it is one is a system that's just going to ask for rebellion. And so he argues for this humanity of the enslaved while also profiting off of slavery his entire life. In in that interview with the abolition magazine, where he's arguing for the Spanish system, he says, uh, to do good in this world, we must have money. Um so he he frees about a third of his enslaved people, but he, he retains others. And he argues for self-manumission. He allows um, enslaved people under um, his ownership to purchase their freedom for half their market value. So he does all of these things 
um, including taking himself an African wife or wives and having a a multi-ethnic family um, and trying to make sure his children are set up and taken care of in this Florida system. Uh, he does all these things that make him seem very apart from the time, very unusual, very rebellious, while also still being a slave owner and conforming to the laws of the time and being a very prominent wealthy man in, in his era. So he's he's a story of contradictions. And because of that, uh, a really interesting story for park rangers to tell. Yeah. And, and Emily, <laughs> you, you make a couple of really good points that, that people coming to the story of Kingsley Plantation need to understand. First, again, Florida is not part of the United States at this time. It is a yeah. Spanish holding and getting back to Craig's Terra example, British colonial American slavery is a different system than Spanish slavery. Understand that going in. There is also in 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 the literature there is this tendency to make out Zephaniah Kingsley as some sort of benevolent dictator but always remember he's an enslaver this is a vile brutal evil system was he out in the fields cracking a whip probably not like what went on in georgia and south carolina and alabama but never confuse zephaniah kingsley with a good guy he was not a good guy. He was an enslaver. And when we get into the, the story of, of Anna Kingsley, I'm going to follow up on that. But a lot of times in the telling of Kingsley Plantation, Zephaniah Kingsley is made out to be a borderline hero or example of, of how slavery doesn't have to be so bad. Um, get that straight out of your head. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the story of of the history of slavery is complicated and it's wide and and you know sometimes we only get a very short amount of time in school to learn about it and then we get this picture of like people in cotton fields in Alabama and it's it, it happened in the American South and really mm -hmm. slavery is far more complicated than I me. Mean, slavery happened in Massachusetts. People are shocked when they hear that. There was slavery in Massachusetts. Well, I mean, it wasn't there for as long as it was in mm -hmm. in Alabama or in other places. But um, slavery is a is a global story. I mean, slave the, the Egyptians. Yeah. There's slavery in China. The, the slavery is far more complicated. And, and it's still ongoing when you look at, at at the 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 sex trade. And you yeah. go to a go <laughs> go to Atlanta Hartsfield International Airport, and you'll say, you know. We take child, you know, we take human trafficking seriously. That's slavery. Okay, so yeah. slavery continues to this day across the world. But it and it is a nuanced story. And, and again, the, the the point I want to make is that when you go to Kingsley Plantation, understand that's a different sort of slavery and system and operation than what you'd see when you go to go to Charleston and, and visit the the plantations outside of town there. Exactly. It's it's a complicated history of, of enslavement. So mm -hmm. we're just one of the sites that gets to kind of fill in those details and yeah. really explore a subject that's quite large. Um, mm -hmm. And we explore it through that Spanish story. And then oftentimes we use Anna to highlight it because Anna Kingsley, born onto Jai, does experience enslavement from every level, from every perspective. Yeah. And she really highlights that 
complex nature of Spanish slavery and then the transition into becoming a U.S. territory. What does that mean? And then further, I mean, she lives post-emancipation. So, I mean, she lives to see the end of slavery in America. Uh, she was born free in a slaveholding society in Africa where slavery looked, again, very different than it looked in, in the American South later on. But she was born into a society with slaves. And she really highlights how complicated and fascinating and uh, how much we can learn about this subject just from this central figure. And maybe that's why sometimes Zephaniah comes across as, as another one of the central points, because we tell a lot of Anna's story through Zephaniah, mm -hmm. because that's where the documents lie. But I, I honestly, I kind of see her more as the central story of Kingsley Plantation, what kind of sets it apart, um, even yeah. though, you know, obviously the property is owned by him. Mm -hmm. But before we get to her, and I really want to get to her because she's, a, like you said, a fascinating character. Where did he come from? Where was he from originally? Oh, he's born in he he's born in England. Um, mm -hmm. Quaker father, Scottish mother, and and they immigrate. And his family are loyalists. Um, when they're mm. living in the Carolinas, they're loyalists during the American Revolution. Um, so you know what happens? That doesn't work out too well for them. Um, they're banished, literally banished from the colony, and his family flees to Nova Scotia. Um, so when I said that this was a man whose opinions and values kind of changed throughout his life, um, I think he may have learned an, a life lesson very early on that when you uh, pick a side and have strong convictions, you sometimes you lose. You can pay consequences yeah. for that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He pledges his loyalty to a bunch of different countries over the course of his life. You know, he's he's British for a little bit, then he's an American, then he pledges his loyalty to the Spanish when they're giving away land grants. Uh, I mean, he's he's very flexible in terms of his ideas and his loyalties. Uh, it's, I, I su I'm surprised to hear you say his father was a Quaker because the Quakers were pretty well known for being abolitionists. They they were, yeah. And that probably plays a role in his, in his story and why he's so complicated and at times contradictory. Hmm. Well, let, let's go ahead and, and get to the woman who had become known as Anna Kingsley. And you mentioned her name, Anna Majigini Jai, and she was from what is today Senegal. She was, <laughs> her father was killed and she was kidnapped and imprisoned and sent into slavery around 1793. She was sent to Havana, Cuba, and that's where Zephaniah Kingsley comes into the picture. He was down in Cuba buying people, and he bought a wife. And I will mention, and remember this, when you ever hear the name Zephaniah Kingsley and, and someone's trying to tell you about what kind of guy he was, Anna Majigini Jai was 13 years old when, he was when she was purchased by Zephaniah Kingsley. By the time she got back to Florida, she was pregnant. So she was raped by Zephaniah Kingsley, period. So Zephaniah Kingsley is a slaver and a rapist. And what would happen with their quote-unquote relationship, always remember that's where and how it started. Yeah, she's, she's 13. He's 41. Um, she comes into Florida as um, one of uh, Trace Negra's bazellas. So there's this document, and it's almost like a receipt where he's declaring, like in customs, what he's bringing in. And she is just one of Trace Negra's bazellas that he's bringing in. 
Um, now, what her position and place in his family structure would become, I think, is a reflection of her resilience and, and her survival and her making a place for herself in this world. Yeah. Her intelligence. Um, I mean, I mean, she's trilingual. Uh, we, I mean, we know that she survived and she made the best life possible for her children in the system that she found herself in. Yeah. Yeah. There's a book about her. I actually bought in Jacksonville by Daniel Mm -hmm. Schaefer. It quotes, (laughs) quotes a letter from Zephaniah Kingsley that described her. All right. So it was in his last will and Testament. She was a fine, tall figure, black as jet, and a very handsome woman. But there are no pictures of her, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And no, she no she photograph. is descended from royalty, the, the belief is, uh, from Africa. And to complicate this whole thing even further, she owned people as well. Yeah, so, so she's come, she comes from the royal lineage uh, in the Wolof Empire and... Um, some some even pose that maybe that's part of why she's captured as a retaliation and part of this ah. um, political struggle, mm-hmm. um, you know, taking her out of taking many of the royal family members kind of out of the equation in this struggle. But uh, there are African griots who can still to this day, because it is a royal lineage, trace their entire family tree and go back to her family. I mean, we, wow. we can identify um, where she was from. I mean, that's really one of the rare stories when we're talking about slavery is that we can say like, this is where someone was from. This is their family in Africa. This is when they were taken. This is what happened to them. And we can follow their whole life. That's very, very rare. And so um, she comes from a slaveholding society. Now she's 13 years old. Did she own slaves in Africa? Not really. No. But she does come from a society where owning slaves is not abnormal to her Mm -hmm. what's kind of more abnormal is in spanish florida she finds herself with rights to own slaves herself as a free black woman which is what kind of sets the story in florida apart from the story in the carolinas like we were talking about do we know Um, how she became how she became freed do do is there any records that indicate that? Yeah, well, we well we have the manumission papers. So okay. Zephaniah Kingsley frees her in 1811, along with their three children. At that point, so George, Mary, and Martha are born. Mm. Um, noteful, they have very very English names and yes. <laughs> uh, family names from the Kingsley family. So the story gets really complicated because yeah, no uh, there's other Annas and there's other Marthas and there's lots of Georges in this family tree. Um, but they, she, she leans, so her, her children are named these English names. They are very much identified as Kingsley's, even from birth. George, Mary, and Martha are born into slavery because their mother is enslaved. So whether or not Anna was in the fields or living in the planter's home with Zephaniah, it was the condition of the mother that determined the status of the child. So free or enslaved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the children are born slaves. So he frees her and their three children at that point in 1811. It's useful to note that there are political things happening. So there's Patriot Rebellion. There's all these other kind of uh, things tinkering that might 
throw off this Spanish system. So in the Spanish system, she and those children become free people who can own property, who can file legal legal writs in court, who have these rights. She had rights as a free black woman living in Spanish Florida that white woman living in Georgia didn't have. Okay. Wow. Very different system. And she uses all of those rights. She, she owns people. She owns property. She owns her own business separate from Zephaniah. So what was, she, what was her business? Uh, she was a merchant. She had a little store along the St. John's River. People traveling up and down the river. She had a, a small store. It burns during the War of 1812, uh, sometimes known as the Other War of 1812, just to get really complicated. Um, <laughs> so he may free her... Um, just around the corner, 10 years later, you the U.S. becomes, it becomes a U.S. territory. 1821, so, yep. Exactly. Yeah. So this may be a move to just try and get ahead of the game. Maybe <laughs> he sees that this is going to become a U.S. territory. And if his family is free going into it, that's kind of a better position to be in. Um, or maybe that's the argument she made to him. Maybe. We don't really yeah. know. Like, that's mm-hmm. the... The complex. We never know her thoughts and mm-hmm. her feelings about, well, Zephaniah specifically, but uh, about the situation, about enslavement, about so many issues. We just kind of have to speculate, which is kind of fun because you can put yourself in in her position. You know, what did freedom mean to her? What did slavery mean to her? And you can ask these big questions, but the tough part is some things we'll never get answers to. Yeah, you mentioned the Patriot Rebellion. What was that? It's this group trying to kind of um, as, assert their independence and uh, they they want Florida to become part of the United States. But, you know, the United States is fighting that big war of 1812, the little more famous one. Um, and, but for the similar reasons, you know, they're trying to kick the British out. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're also trying to kind of kick the Spanish out. It's in this very manifest destiny kind of era of U.S. history. And this group of men from Georgia who call themselves patriots decide with kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge from the U.S. government that they're going to invade Florida and take over. Mm-hmm. And they fly the patriot rebel flag. So it's not the U.S. invading. It's this this militia called the patriots. Yeah. They fly that flag for one day when they take over territory. And then well, they lower like the proud that boys. flag. <laughs> Yeah. They lower the flag and then raise the U.S. flag and say, hey, we mm-hmm. gave the land that we uh, uh, just invaded to the United States. But the United States didn't invade, wink, wink, nudge, mm-hmm. nudge. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, one of the people involved in this Patriot Rebellion or one of the people who was signing the document declaring that this should be part of the United States, good old Zephaniah Kingsley. <laughs> he then goes to the Spanish. Yeah, he goes to the Spanish governor and basically says, you know, they they forced me to do it. I didn't want to do that. They forced me to. So he, for all effects, takes both sides in this war. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. If, if you ever. For Anna, it, if this becomes part of the United States, she loses everything. So when the rebels start heading towards her property, she burns it to the ground rather wow. than let them take it. So that's amazing. She wants it to be Spanish. Yeah. 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 Anyone who goes to Amelia Island, they will perhaps hear it or see it referred to as the Island of Eight Flags because it, you know, existed under eight different flags. One of those the, that, that people have the most difficult time placing is that Patriots flag, which which flew for such a brief time. But when you go to Amelia Island and your Island of Eight Flags, that is one of those. 
I think it's it's interesting also about the the Kingsley plantation and how people think of plantation slavery in the United States and how this was was different. The enslaved there provided for their own food, and they also had a, a different. I'll call it a work day where they were generally just assigned specific tasks. And then once they were finished with whatever that happened to be, again, as much as this can be true under slavery, their day was kind of their own after that. Yeah. So um, the task system is not something specific to Zephaniah Kingsley. It, it was seen a lot of times on these coastal island plantations. You have to Remember, like in this time, uh, a lot of people are dying from diseases like malaria and like fevers. Ag- the ague was a big deal. And so um, they developed a system by which plantations could be managed in absentia. So you didn't necessarily have planters at all of the plantations. Again, Zephaniah Kingsley owns 32,000 acres in the Jacksonville area. Uh, Fort George Island is about a thousand acre island. It's just one of his holdings. So he wants these to be able to manage and run without him there. And so he does things like establish a task system where you just have to meet a quota, a a certain amount of work every day. And then the rest of the day um, is, and I don't want to say free because what it is, you have to provide your own food with the rest of the day. You have to repair your home. You have to provide, you know, childcare. Like there's all these other things. They're doing more work. They're just doing work that is for themselves at the balance mm-hmm. of their day. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't want people to forget that this is a community, a community made up of lots and lots of different people. So mm-hmm. while a young man in his um, 30s or 40s may be able to accomplish a task of, you know, picking a certain amount of pounds of Sea Island cotton by three o'clock, he's working next to a woman who's 70. And he's and down the row is a pregnant woman. So he might also be going over here and going over there and trying to make sure they meet their quotas as well. Um, this is a community that for its survival had to cling to one another and support yeah. one another. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they're, they're uh, able to use the balance of their day for fishing, for working in their own gardens. Um, we know that there's evidence of them raising chickens and selling them or trading them for to people along the river and that's how people were able to self self manumit either through what little money they could earn on those other tasks at the end of the day um, or they would sell out their labor on Sundays so um, at Kingsley plantation mm-hmm. they they worked six days a week but Sundays was off well there's people like carpenter Bill and carpenter Bonify and they had these skills they were skilled craftsmen and they could sell out work as a carpenter on Sundays and work at other places and make a wage. And Mm -hmm. with those earnings, they were able to manumit um, themselves and eventually many members of their families. But that means that for years they worked seven days a week and only earned money one day a week. So it's still struggle. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You, You mentioned Sea Island cotton was grown there. And on my visit to Kingsley Plantation, uh, it was shared that Sea Island cotton was the particular strain of cotton that was devastated by the boll weevil. And you actually have to have a, a permit today to grow Sea Island cotton because it is still so susceptible to the, the boll weevil. But there was also uh, orange orchards, some rice, 
and Indigo. And I want to talk about Indigo briefly because it was incredibly toxic to produce the dye and the rangers at Kingsley Plantation gave an explanation for for why that is so. And I, I, I'm, I'm hoping you could share that with folks. Well, indigo is actually the second most deadly cash crop, second only to sugarcane. That reason, the, the caustic nature of the dye itself and breathing in the fumes from that processing led to a lot of pulmonary disease. Um, indigo is also just, it's processed in incredibly hot conditions. People are waving machetes to cut down these branches. I mean, it's just a dangerous job, first and foremost, um, to even grow this stuff. But once you're growing it, you're putting this greenery into these massive vats. Um, And part of the chemical breakdown of this plant into a dye is that they're soaking it in huge vats of stale human urine. And I okay. always pause when I say that because in a school group, that's when all the fourth graders go, ah! <laughs> I don't blame them. <laughs> yeah. no, it's, it's, it's nasty, nasty business. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's awful. We had we had one ranger. Um, she was very into living history and she was trying to really figure out how this process was done. And she she decided to test a vat using oh, no. actual stale human urine. Um, but she did it outside of my office door. So <laughs> I oh my God! The tiniest, tiniest little uh, sensory experience of what that might have been like, and that was enough for me. Yeah, and, people and, and, had to actually get into those vats and stir it to oh, again uh, facilitate this this chemical reaction that was happening, and um, people are breathing that in, and yeah. it killed people. It killed yeah. people for a color. Yeah, but that yes. color was so valuable. That color was seen as as a part of status i mean today people still wear um indigo blue now it's processed in a different way but mm-hmm. um i know when people die with indigo even today they do it in a dye box so it's an enclosed environment so they're still not breathing in the actual mm-hmm. pigment dye because it yeah. can still have health hazards yeah it, it, and it would require the hundreds if not thousands of pounds of the plant to produce ounces of actual indigo dye that was usable in in textiles and the average lifespan of someone or the average working lifespan was like six years i mean it Mm -hmm. it consumed people uh because that that toxic stew you know the the fume it would become airborne you know the fumes and the dust and what was coming off there and you breathe that in it's like black lung or anything else you know from from coal mining it's just it's terrible 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 business and i I was unaware until visiting kingsley plantation that that was the nature of indigo production and again something not discussed enough in in american history when when we talk about indigo and and plantations and and you know just again i think the stale urine example gives people an idea of of if what 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 it was like to be enslaved even even in spanish florida where quote unquote it wasn't so bad yeah the um the smell is attracting bugs and then there's even the bug-borne diseases on top of it it's it's really like a hazard from every direction but because it could be shipped so it, it made these tiny little blocks and then those blocks could be shipped over to england which is a huge textile production center where they're making it, it was reconstituted over there into these giant vats of dye. Um, so it was incredibly valuable. It mm-hmm. made 
it made a lot of people money and they used that as the justification for these shortened lifespans and this horrible working conditions. Yeah. So uh, I, I want to get back to Anna. So you said she, mm-hmm. she torched the place rather than have it fall into, into the hands of these other yeah. folks. What yeah. happened to her after that? What is she, well, so she burned down everything she had. Where did she go? After well, that? Eventually, eventually the, um, well, she still owned a lot of property. She's still married to Zephaniah King. So okay. it was not everything she had. But okay. um, but she does receive a commendation from the Spanish governor. Eventually, mm-hmm. this this rebellion piddles out. It, it fizzles. Um, yeah. They retreat. It stays, stays part of the Spanish uh, territory for a little bit longer. It passes peacefully later. But um, uh, she actually is recognized by the Spanish governor for her bravery. There's this great ship captain's log that you can read where he kind of describes this whole incident and then reports it back to um, the governor who um, awards Zephaniah a special land grant for Anna's bravery. It's <laughs> so, just oh man, weird thing <laughs> yeah. It, this hedging is bets thing for Zephaniah kind of works out over and over again in, in many ways. Um, yeah. But that's when, so, so that property is burned. That's when they move to Fort George Island, which would be her home for 23 years, which is the place where we talk most about her. Um, yeah. But, but it's after that chapter that she arrives at Kingsley plantation, which was itself a site marred by that whole uh, event. Uh, and uh, all of the outbuildings had been burned to the ground. The planter's house somehow survived. Again, I don't know. It's crazy that that building is mm-hmm. still standing. But um, when they arrive, they oversee the construction of the kitchen house, the barn, the, the slave quarters that you see today at the site. And so, I mean, the planter's house predates it and the site as a plantation predates it. But most of the buildings on the site were constructed during the Kingsley era, um, which is part of why it's called Kingsley Plantation. They're not the only story that we tell there, um, but because most of the buildings date to their ownership. We, we talk a lot about it. But Anna actually actually lived in the kitchen house, not necessarily in the planter's house with Zephaniah. So we sometimes refer to that as the Mam Anna house or... Um, Anna's rooms or things like that, because um, she lived in a separate building from Zephaniah. Why? Do we know? Again, we don't have by her hand exactly why. Um, We've explained the origins of their relationship. That might be why. But we also know that she came from a polygamous society in Africa where a man would have multiple wives and each of those wives would have their own homes. Zephaniah recognized um, the children of multiple women, all formerly enslaved. He manumits all of them. He keeps getting older and they keep staying about that uh, young age. Um, But so there's Flora, there's Sarah, there's um, some historians argue that Miss Dilna Magundo is one. Some say no. Um, So he recognizes the children of multiple women and maybe it's part of her her experience in a polygamous society to have a separate building from your husband, mm-hmm. to have a separate home, or maybe he snored. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have it written down. It could be both. So, <laughs> we have lots of references to her living in that building, though. Yeah. Okay. So 1821 comes along. Uh, Florida becomes a U.S. territory. This Spanish system of slavery that allowed for Anna to have her own business and purchase her freedom and purchase enslaved people herself. Now what happens? 
life continues in some ways. Um, Anna and her her son and daughters are living on Port George Island. They're still the um, respected wife and family of Zephaniah. They have a wealthy white man who can sign the legal documents and stand for them in court. But remember, he's much older than Anna. So he's not going to be around for the long haul. In the short term, things continue. But so she she has another child, John Maxwell. And John Maxwell is born free, but he's born into the United States. And so that probably makes them start to question, like, what is the future here? What What is going to happen? Zephaniah takes a seat on the Territorial Legislative Council. So he's trying to be an active writer of what their future will be. And he that's when he starts to really promote this three-tiered system. And he makes the argument in a lot of different ways to different people. Um, so he tries to argue for the Spanish system to slaveholders. And he basically says, hey, if you don't want slave revolts, if you don't want slave rebellions, you need to have this system. This is the system that makes slavery actually sustainable. But then he also goes to, again, abolitionists. And, and he's talking about, you know, having a system by which people can free themselves is more important. And, and he makes these arguments um, with Lydia Marie Child, and um, he's traveling back and forth. Um, but eventually, it really becomes obvious that he's not changing anyone's minds. He's kind of you know, play both sides, and um, they need a different option. And so he looks to a place where he had visited um, as a slave trader. So he had been a merchant and a slave trader in his uh, earlier life. And he had been in Haiti. You know, he knows of Haiti at that point, point in time. It's all Haiti. So today it's the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Um, but it was all the island of Haiti at the time. And it's the first free Black Republic in the area. And so he knows, okay. That's a place where my sons can be safe, where my sons will continue to own property and I can set them up for a future. And so he moves Anna, George, John Maxwell, he moves them down and purchases a huge swath of land in Haiti. He frees a large number of enslaved people because you can't bring slaves down to Haiti. It's a free place. But he takes down indentured servants, so they still have to serve for a certain amount of time under his his son. So um, he's looking for an alternative, and he calls it the colony. It's not a colony, but that's just what he calls it. Um, and he, he looks to Haiti as that option. And then he goes around talking about it, promoting it. His daughters had married wealthy white men in the Jacksonville area. They stayed behind because, again, although they lost rights, they were women. And like I said about those women in Georgia, women didn't have a lot of rights. As long as they had a wealthy white man who could protect them, mm -hmm. he considered them okay. So he is very patriarchal. He's trying to protect his people. And that's what he sees Haiti as, as that solution. And, and he was kind of right. They were going to need it because he does die traveling back and forth, settling this business. And um, before everyone's fully settled, a huge court case ensues. And his white family, not not another wife, not more kids, yeah. but his his sister, his relatives, relatives yeah. his extended family, yes, um, they file uh, uh, claims on his will. You know, in his will, he states that he wants his family, his large, complicated, kind of weird family, to inherit the bulk of his property, um, and they challenge that. 
because of because of the race of the people involved. Exactly. Well, because of the money involved, it's probably well. Yeah, well, yeah I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> but, the, yeah. but the legal yeah. challenge is based on their race. They state that you know uh, George is uh, unable to inherit because of the color of his skin and because of the new laws that are happening in Florida. I mean, this goes. This court case goes back and forth and takes a lot of time. It's about to be heard by the Florida State Supreme Court. The courts basically come down with this decision about Anna's inheritance. I'm simplifying it a little bit for time's sake, but according to the courts, Anna's not a black woman. Really? Mm. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of strange. No, no. Anna is not a black woman because a black woman wouldn't have been able to inherit. Anna is a Spanish woman. Yeah. She was under the Spanish crown. She was uh, recognized in the Spanish system. Even the governor has a special commendation for Spanish citizen Anna Kingsley. Um, So she's decreed to be Spanish. And through that designation, through that loophole, let's say, Mm -hmm. um, she is able to inherit. But more than inherit the property, she inherits the rights of a Spanish woman from that 1821 treaty. She is, it says it will respect the rights and privileges of, of Spanish Spanish citizens. Yeah. She's a Spanish citizen. So she gets to own property. She gets to file a legal suit in court. She gets all of those rights back Mm. and she moves back. So she, she, George, um, during this whole court case, her oldest son, George is lost at sea. His family remains in Haiti, her youngest son, John Maxwell, remains. Um, some of our descendants come from the community down in in uh, the, the Dominican Republic. Republic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but Anna comes back to be with her daughters. And she settles along the St. John's River again. And, um, and she has this moment of almost triumph. You know, she's she's got those rights again. She's protected again. But it's a tenuous one. Because guess what's coming up right up around the corner again? Civil, Civil War. War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All these little moments of peace in her life come with this looming kind of dread and this question mark of what is her status. And and the Civil War does just that again. And this time it's questioning the status of, of her, but also her daughters, her grandchildren. Um, I mean, she has to flee during the war. She spends some time in New York. Uh, when she comes down to Florida, she stays in Fernandina because Fort Fernandina Beach was held by the Union during the war, um, predominantly. Um, you know the Fort Clinch story. Um, so she stays there for some time. And it's not until, I think, like 1870 or maybe 1865, I, she, she gets back and she settles back along the banks of the St. John's where, I mean, that's kind of her her roots in this area she's lived in lots of different places mm-hmm. and lots of different properties but always along the banks of the saint john's river and she's able to settle there and live in a place where she knows that her children are free where that looming sense of enslavement it, it's no longer hanging over her head the emancipation proclamation has been signed and and she dies knowing that her children and her grandchildren they've escaped slavery and wow. that's kind of part of the reason why we like to tell the story. Again, a story. Most stories of enslaved people, they they, they don't, don't have a happy have ending. A, yeah, yeah they don't, and and they don't have such a well illustrated beginning, middle, and end. And and yeah. hers does. I mean, she is in an unmarked grave, but we know where it is. We know so many members of her 
her family line. I mean, uh, in her her family uh, lineage, uh, we have the wife of Florida's first black millionaire. Um, we we know it kind of like it turns out okay. Mm-hmm. We have these amazing descendants that we get to talk to and and hear how they um, reconcile with Zephaniah's story and Anna's yeah. story and having such yeah. deep roots in the in the Jacksonville area and what that experience is and. You mentioned the, yeah, the descendants of Anna Majigini, Jai, Anna Kingsley, and we have a bonus episode exclusively for our patrons at patreon.com with Janetta Betch Cole, who is one of those direct descendants of Anna Majigini, Jai, which is just unimaginable to think about. Um, Janetta Betch Cole, a Florida legend in her own right, an incredibly accomplished woman, president at Spelman College, the uh, you know, director of the National uh, African American Museum of Art, uh, just a, a brilliant, brilliant woman who ties her direct ancestry back to Anna Majigina Jai. Uh, amazing, amazing. And, and folks can can become members uh, of our Patreon at, at uh, patreon.com. Welcome to Florida if you want to listen to that conversation. Yeah, she's an amazing lady and mm. wonderful to hear speak. So yes. have, 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 have descendants come to the plantation from time to time? Yeah. So um, actually our descendants are, are pretty active and they uh, initially came up with kind of this idea to do a family reunion of sorts at one point. Wow. And it was called the Kingsley Heritage Celebration. Um, it's grown to much more of a community celebration and one of our big event of the year, basically, mm-hmm. that we hold every year in February. Um, mm-hmm. But it started as a family reunion. We have people, again, uh, so we have um, like Manuel Kingsley, he comes to mind and he's descended from that uh, Dominican Republic side of the family. And so when he got to meet with the the Betch side um, mm-hmm. and and Perry Francis Betch, which is Jenna Cole's niece, um, they oh. met at the plantation, had this really powerful experience. Um, we have some of the descendants of enslaved people as part of our descendant community as well. And so um, the the Bartley family are are one of those groups, and we get to talk about Gullah Geechee traditions through them, and mm. um, that's really even only because we have one photo, an image that said um, Aunt Easter born at Kingsley Plantation on the back of it. Mm. That's all we had, but we put it on display and and someone came in and said, that's Aunt Easter. That's old Aunt Easter. She lived so long that there were still living people who recognized her as this like great aunt figure in their family. And so we just by luck were able to connect to her large group of descendants and we're always doing research and trying to find out more. So hopefully we can build more of those connections because yeah. that's a tough thing. If, if you're descended from enslaved people, oftentimes like Easter, her name's also Esther. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Bartley in some records. It has, she has a different last name and different records. Um, we have lots of cases where people post emancipation, change their names. So yeah. in the African-American community, like Friedman, Lincoln, Washington, these become really popular last names. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because people chose them. They, they mm-hmm. were establishing yeah. an identity. It's a really important site for the descendants themselves, but for when people don't know where their ancestors were, mm-hmm. it's nice to have a place, just any place to come and say, you know, thank you. Thank you for surviving this. Thank you for making it. And you know, there's there's fewer and fewer sites like this. So this can yeah. be a common 
a shared space of remembering people who've gone before. And so it's, it's a powerful place yeah. for a lot of different reasons. It, it certainly is. And, and you've done a wonderful job of, of explaining that to our listeners today. Emily Parker from the National Park Service, thank you so much for, for this conversation, which has been one of my favorites in the, the three years we've done the show. It's astounding. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I hope people come out. We're doing the Kings of Heritage celebration again this February uh, the 17th in 2024. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Emily. It is an extraordinary story worthy of the national park system, which also houses Yellowstone and Gettysburg. I mean, it's it's that important to American history, and it, it connects to, to Florida history in, in any number of ways, not least of which American Beach, Janetta Betch Cole, that direct descendant of Anna Majigini Jai, is the great-granddaughter of Abraham Lincoln Lewis, Florida's first black millionaire who founded American Beach. When you go there and you start making all these connections, it, it, it's just mind-boggling. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida. <laughs>